Hello and welcome to NDA, the show where I guess I argue with creators about the creator economy. So the show is called NDA, and the point of this show is to have conversations with people within the creator economy that you couldn't necessarily expect to have these conversations out in the open. My day job, I run a company called Nebula, and we are a streaming video platform and a talent management company. We do a bunch of stuff with a bunch of creators. I've acted as the agent or the manager for a bunch of creators over the last however many years. And there's things that we talk about that you don't normally get to hear. They don't fit into tweets. And there's conversations that we have all day, every day that I think would be really interesting for people who are looking to become creators or people who are on the path from, you know, their first YouTube video upload to hopefully finding some level of success. And if these conversations can be useful to those people, great. And if not, well, we're going to have fun with them along the way. This time up, my guest is my very good friend, Thomas Frank. Thomas has been making videos for how many years now, Tom? Eight years. My God. Uh, you launched a new channel back in October of 2020. You've made many, many videos. You've written books. You've sold Notion templates. You are the world's foremost expert, probably, in Notion, an all-around swell guy. Did I capture the essence of you in that, or should I? Should we go back? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's pretty good essence. All right. All right. So I don't want this to be an interview. I know we're early on with this show. I want to make sure that what we're doing here is talking about interesting things. I know you. We spend a ton of time together. You're one of my closest friends in the world. I love you to death. I don't think interviewing you is going to be interesting. But what I do want to do is I want to talk to you about some of the weird shit you've been doing as a creator, because you're both a great case study in how certain things can be done and in some ways a cautionary tale. Interesting. Not in the way you would expect. Uh huh. I think your perspective is is really interesting here. The first thing I want to ask you. Why haven't you made a video in a while? <laughs> I have made a video in a while, Dave. Well, no, I mean, yeah, have you? Not on the main channel. You stopped. Yeah, that's so that's the interesting question. For people who are unfamiliar with the context here, my main channel has two and a half million subscribers. I've been posting there actively since 2014. I've actually had the channel since 2006. And that was my main gig, main income source. A lot of subscribers there would seem crazy to just stop posting on the main channel. In October 2020, I wanted to build a second channel and launched it. It's called Thomas Frank Explains, and it entirely consists of Notion tutorials, build guides, beginner stuff, listicles, fun tips. When they release new features, I cover it, like tech news coverage almost. And I ran that as kind of a side project on the side of the main channel for probably a year and a half. And then about six months ago, I stopped posting on the main channel. I didn't intentionally stop for six months. It just has been a wild roller coaster ride uh, since then. <laughs> uh, and the reason is I launched a product and then started promoting that product, which is a premium notion template called Ultimate Brain via the second channel. And it more than doubled our income basically overnight. And I have had zero time to make a video for six straight months <laughs> on the main channel. There's this great moment. I think neither of us had any idea how big that was going to be. Mm -hmm. I remember I was in Denver and we were talking about like you were looking at watches to have a, a bit of a thing for mechanical watches. And we were kind of, you know, shopping for, for funsies. You found something you like. You said you would get it when your product, your notion template hit a certain number of, of sales. Yeah, it was 100K in total sales. OK, yeah, 100K in total sales. And I'm like, I don't know, how long do you think that'll take? And I think you said something like maybe six months to a year. I'm like, cool. Like, that's great. Like, good goal. Mm -hmm. And I sort of forgot about it. And then you finally put this thing out and it seemed like the next day you're like, OK, I'm ready to get that watch. <laughs> I don't think it was that fast. But you're like, yeah, we're 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 on track. This is going well. And by the way, I'm not going to make any videos on my main channel anymore. I'm not taking any more sponsors. I'm going all in. Yes, there was absolutely an all in component to it. So the history behind this, the first product I launched uh, back in, I think it was August of last year. That's called Creators Companion. It is, it's literally the YouTube management system that my team and I built and tweaked over four years with some added bells and whistles and things customers uh, wanted. 
And that, when I launched it, it did pretty well. I think we started averaging about 15K a month in sales on that template. So that already was a surprise. I was thinking this is going to be two to 3K extra a month, nice little side income source. And the community's thinking at the time was nobody pays for Notion templates. If you're going to sell one, you can't sell one for more than five or 10 bucks. And I was like, what am I going to lose if I try out what I think will work here? I'm going to set this as a higher price thing. I'm going to make it over $100 because if it fails, we already built this product for ourselves. Like I didn't waste that much time and I'm going to get information from this. And then, you know, pretty quickly it was like, oh, this is a 15K per month income source. This has replaced at least one video per month on my main channel, which means we can invest more time into fewer videos. And that sounds great to me. And then people started asking for like a second brain productivity, like personal productivity related template. And I'm like, cool, let's build that. It's not something that I've built over four years for myself. So I'm going to have to go in and research and do a lot more product design and development on this. And then once that finally came out, it was like, boom, 100K a month in income. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so it kind of opened my eyes to just how big my own product could be. And I also realized there's a lot that I need to do to make sure this doesn't crash and burn. From the get go, I decided to offer active support, which is not something most template creators do. So when people ask questions, we have a forum, we actively answer their questions, we shoot for a 24 hour response time at the maximum. And that meant like for eight weeks, I was doing full time support on the template and making documentation and, you know, making videos, written content, basically dumping all of my time into this. And then the last few months have been the process of learning how to scale up and delegate a lot of this stuff to other people. So I hired a support person who's been absolutely crushing it. I recently hired an ops person to help me get my life in order because in addition to not having new videos on the channel, I haven't like figured out my books from the last year and a million other different things. So it's really just kind of been like the process of learning how to deal with this higher scale of revenue. One interesting note here, March of 2021, you were a guest on uh, Alex's Genesis podcast. Mm hmm. Which is part of what I don't want to go too deep into like your origin story or anything, because, you know, there's a really great episode of Genesis. If you're listening now, go listen to that. If, if you're interested in Tom, go go listen to that. But March of 2021, you did the show. You didn't even mention Notion. You talked about building audience. You talked about uh, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram. You talked about uh, Nebula, of course. But uh, you didn't mention the Notion stuff at all. I didn't mention Notion? What? According to my notes. <laughs> There's a, I don't know, amongst our friends, we we sort of make fun of you for being the Notion guy. And to be fair, you've you've gotten us here at the Nebula team pretty well hooked. I'm looking at Notion right now to read these notes. <laughs> so there's, you know, no no shade thrown there. But it's interesting that you, I don't know, I've got this feeling that like a couple of years ago, I made a documentary about sunglasses. And before that, I wasn't ever, nobody thought of me when they thought of sunglasses. But going through this process and doing a little bit of collecting... It was shockingly quick before people just associated that with me. Friends like just thought mm. of me as the the eyewear expert. And to this day, I get that despite like I went through that process and I have a couple of companies I like, but it's not a thing I keep up on. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you, you've made a big flagship piece of content around it. I mean, when I think of eyewear and also uh, watches, even though you haven't made a lot of content on it, I think of you. Yeah, I think that it's I, I think that it's because when you get really into something, it's hard to not talk about it. It's hard not to mm. be excited. It's hard not to be enthusiastic. And this is exactly what we've seen out of you. When uh, A little bit ago, a couple months ago, I think we were talking about, you know, what what you're excited to work on. Do you want to do more main channel videos? And what you told me was that when you wake up in the morning, what you're excited to do is get in, play with Notion and write documentation, which I think is just like the nerdiest possible thing you could be into. But like, you know, you do you, bro. Yeah. I think it was it was 10 p.m. last night. I was um, changing my systems time zone to different time zones to see how it would affect date output in Notion. Huh. This was at 10 p.m. last night. So it does. Yeah. Notion pulls your system time zone. Oh, OK. So there are interesting implications for uh, date output there. Well, I can't wait to read your blog post or watch your video about that. <laughs> 20 minutes on that subject. <laughs> well, so <laughs> I don't want this to be like a full on notion sales pitch podcast, although, you know, yeah, I'm enjoying it. I'm having fun. We're running this show off of notion. We're running the company off of notion now. Mm -hmm. More what I'm interested in. And I want this to be a show that's kind of about arguing. All right, let's get into it. Yeah, let's fight. 
Do you think that this is a good long-term strategy play for you? It's a risk, but yes, I do. Well, I mean, you're, I don't want to say walking away from the main channel, but you're taking the risk that you lose audience there. And that audience could be potentially sustainable for you for years, whereas this might fizzle out in a year or so. How much risk is there that you, you're losing out on the, the audience side? So this is a nuanced question because I absolutely understand that perspective. The main channel represents me being regarded as an expert in a topic that is not tied to one company. People, you know, watch the main channel, they go, oh, this is the productivity channel. This is a self-development channel. And in terms of what I'm talking about, that's kind of hardened against any one company's failure or potential failure. Uh, whereas going all in on Notion, obviously, that's like a lot of platform risk, right? But the thing about Notion is it's not like a very specific software with a very specific use case. And that's, you know, you only do one thing in it. There's a lot that people learn how to do simply by using this platform, project management, uh, even a little bit of coding and programming. So I think it dovetails pretty nicely with a lot of the topics I was already talking about. And I don't think that, you know, even if at some point in the future, they lose market share or get acquired or whatever it is, I don't think it will have been a wasted effort because people are going to, you know, I have the ability to pivot to another thing if I need to. And people will be like, well, he's great at teaching this thing. If there's another thing that there's a lot of market excitement around, I have all this knowledge, all this audience, all this practice, having built up a channel on this, I could do it somewhere else. And the other thing is we're not quitting the main channel. Well, we just have to scale up and, and get back to it. Is that genuinely the plan? Because like when you take this many months off. Oh, yeah. After this podcast, I have a meeting with my uh, new head of content on the main channel and we're going over a script that he wrote. Oh, well, if you have a meeting, I didn't realize there was a meeting. OK, then there is a meeting. Mm hmm. Well. I'll pause my worrying. <laughs> the big picture thing I'm thinking about here is not really so much you. Like, you'll be fine. Mm -hmm. uh, you're, you're a smart dude. You'll figure it out. But when creators are looking at what are the things that I should build on platform, what are the things I should build off platform, I'm a huge proponent of I think everybody should leverage whatever success they find on YouTube or TikTok or whatever to start building businesses. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I, I say whenever I talk to a new creator, either our creators or new folks who might be coming in, or just friends that I meet out in the world, the thing that I'm looking at is what their trajectory looks like. Mm. Not is their channel growing, but how are they developing as a business person? Mm -hmm. Some people start a YouTube channel because they think it would be fun to have a YouTube channel, and then they start accidentally making money, and they want to get ad revenue, they want to get sponsor dollars, they want, to, they want this to be their job. And then there are people who want it to be their business. And the difference between mm. a job and a business Having a YouTube channel is a job. If the end of your aspirations is professional full-time YouTuber, there's no shame in that. And I, I don't even mean that in a, you know, the world needs ditch diggers too sort of way. I, I mean that in like, not everyone in the world needs to be an epic hustler who's out to build an empire. Yeah. It's okay to want to just do things you enjoy doing and making a living at that. That is mm -hmm. an awesome goal. But there are also the people who want to build a company and have employees and make things and make sure that the company is still making those things even when they step away more of the empire building and so the the line for me is do you want a job or do you want a business right and i try to whenever possible nudge people towards having a business it is more sustainable being a youtuber can be fickle it can be difficult to navigate what the platform wants and what the audience wants so finding your path to sustainability, what works today or what has worked for the last three or four years might suddenly change tomorrow. And you can find yourself very frustrated, not as adaptable as, as you might otherwise be. Mm -hmm. So using you as sort of a, a template here and your perspective, I guess kind of what I'm looking for is not necessarily how will this affect you, but what do you think happens when somebody shifts their focus away from the platform, you know, dancing with the one who brought you? If you shift your focus away from YouTube to start building those other things, if those other things don't succeed, there's obviously risk there. But is that a thing that we should be advising creators to do, taking a step away from the, the big money maker to, to chase the secondary goals? Or is there a different way to approach that? There's a piece of philosophy here. It's often called the exploration exploitation dilemma. And human beings are pretty much the only organism that we know of that engage in this dilemma. So, you know, if you find a resource that you can exploit, you can get rewards from it. The logical thing to do would be to keep exploiting that resource and getting the rewards from it. But we have this weird compulsion to 
walk away from the thing that's paying out because we're curious about the unknown. We're curious about what else is out there. And so we go and we find out. That's why we try to go to space and we had explorers and all these kinds of things. And I love exploration. So part of the risk, kind of to like flip the way we're viewing this, part of the risk actually exists in the scenario where I just stay on YouTube. I just keep making content, just keep doing the thing that's paying out. Because if, if I keep doing that, it's possible that I'm not learning and progressing, especially in ways that are interesting to me. And I may wake up one morning uh, 10 years from now, having basically done the same thing for 10 years and having a lot of potential, even better opportunities pass me up. It's like in, in any game, any choice you make involves risk. I mean, you play poker, anything you do involves risk. Folding involves risk, making a bet involves risk. So my way of kind of navigating that is... One, I try to follow my interest. And two, I ask myself, am I hitting, I guess like it's kind of like a trifecta. And I talk about this in terms of personal branding, but it also makes sense in terms of career pivots and shifts. If you're at an intersection of something you find interesting, something you're good at and something that there is a market for, then you're in a good spot. So that's what I ask myself when I'm you know, doing this cost benefit analysis of shifting more focus over to my smaller notion channel versus continuing to make our big channel videos. Is there a market there? Yes. Is it something I'm good at? Absolutely. Is it something I'm passionate about? Yeah, I wake up every morning wanting to write documentation about Unix epoch time because I'm a freaking nerd. Yep. And you know, as long as it's there at the intersection of those three things, then it's not obviously a bad idea. Is it the most optimal idea? I don't know. But I do know that what I don't want to do is just sit down and write yet another productivity video about like, going to sleep on time or something like I've done that for 10 years <laughs> and over here, like there's this interesting challenge and I know there's a market behind it and I know there's business opportunity behind it. And I know there's a lot more in the future if I can establish myself as being perceived as the go-to expert there, not just notion templates. If I wanted to absolutely the potential to build a consultancy out of this, people are very hungry for one-on-one -on -one notion build help and ongoing support. Do I want to do that? I'm not sure, but I could hire a team and be the face of it and bring in the inbound leads. There's so many opportunities there that I perceive. So it doesn't seem like an obviously dumb idea to me. No, I, and I'm surprised you didn't call this out, but I, I feel like the risk on the other side is if you just keep doing the same thing forever, expecting the same level of success, mm -hmm. that's its own kind of risk, especially in an environment where professional YouTube, I mean, YouTube as a platform has existed for what, 17 years? Uh, Yeah, something like that. 2005, yeah. Yeah, and being a professional YouTuber, maybe, I don't know, 10, 10 years, realistically, become more of a thing in the last five. The increase in number of channels with 100,000 subscribers. More channels are, are getting their silver play buttons per month today than at any point in YouTube's history by like a, an order of magnitude. Yeah, I mean, there are channels, especially with shorts, like there are channels that just go to 100K overnight. Oh, sure. You and I both know that views are not conversions. Mm -hmm. Views do not equal money to a certain extent on, on AdSense, yes. But like views alone do not necessarily build a business. They're one piece of the funnel. Yeah. It depends on genre. Views can be uh, super valuable if you're like a finance YouTuber mm -hmm. or certain kinds of lifestyle creators, that sort of a thing. But speaking generally, views do not equal the totality of money. So thinking and, and certainly abstract one layer further away, subscribers are almost meaningless as a metric. So when we say somebody got 100,000 subscribers, that doesn't mean that they have a functional business, but it is an indicator that there is some level of traction. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting when you look at the early days and late stage are the two points of time where subscriber counts are least useful. If your channel's a month old and you have a million subscribers, that audience has no idea who you are. Yeah. They may be subscribed to find out. They might be interested in finding out who you are, but they don't know you and they don't trust you yet. Mm -hmm. And if you're 10 years into your channel and you've got 7 million subscribers, but only 100,000 people are watching any given video, what good are the rest of those subscribers? Yep. One of the biggest points of frustration for me is I get emails and DMs from creators every day, every single day, you know, wanting to do something together. And one of the first things they do is tell me how many subscribers they have. And I just want to throw my computer out the damn window. I don't care. It is as if you wrote an email to me telling me the entire sum of money you've ever collectively had in your bank account. It does not mean you have that much money. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean you can go spend that today. 
it's useless. Cumulative numbers are problematic for that reason. But when I see somebody getting 100,000 views on 7 million subs, I'm thinking, cool, why did 6.9 million people not want to watch this video? Yeah. Well, the answer is that those people just like trailed off and there's no system to automatically unsubscribe them when they stop caring. Yep. And subscriber status is less and less important to the platform. One small thing I like about Spotify is it shows like monthly listeners is the main statistic you see mm -hmm. on an artist page. Yeah, I wish YouTube would do stuff like this. And that's more representative of how algorithmic platforms work. Agreed. But when we when we look at the way that people will set their business up, having a high view count or having a high subscriber count and thinking that you have now the trappings of a successful YouTube business and you should go and start creating new products or pushing merch or whatever. I think it's really easy for creators to get trapped in this thinking that there is a, a chart that you're supposed to follow. Once you hit this milestone, you're supposed to do this thing. And the inherent risk to wandering off and doing something else is that you're underserving the audience you have. The other side of it is that if you're so committed to just those numbers, you're ignoring that your audience is like your audience is a small subset of the people who watch your videos. And there might be ways that you can take that group of people and and activate them or, or I don't want to speak cynically and, and like Gary Vee about this, but there are things that you can do for that audience, things that you can build for them, build with them that don't necessarily apply to the rest of the group. And the rest of the group can potentially be holding you back. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, sometimes I think about it in terms of like, you ever played Age of Empires or like old RTS games? I played some Star Wars game ages ago that was vaguely like this. How about Civ? Yeah, Civ's a good example. Yeah, Patch made me play Civ one time. I was terrible at it. Perfect. There are low-level buildings that you can build very, very quickly. And like you can get X amount of reward out of those. And you can build them in three days. And then there are like the ones that take months to build. But once they get going, they pay out huge rewards. That's kind of how I think of it. It's like if I can keep making one video and then another video and another video and like there's X amount of rewards that's going to come from that. There's X amount of good that I can do in the world, but I could also take my focus and also, you know, money and team time and all kinds of stuff. And I can invest it in something that's going to take a lot longer to get its legs underneath it. But if it actually pays off, the upside is potentially much higher, both in terms of income uh, and revenue for my business, but also in terms of what it can do for a specific audience. And maybe that specific audience isn't as big as the people who are watching my videos over here, but maybe it significantly improves their lives or unlocks something for a smaller audience in a more meaningful way. Do you or did you worry at all with the main channel? The easy thing to worry about is you become the notion guy. And that's like all anybody sees you as. But that's easy enough to change. Like I said, you make one documentary about sunglasses and you're the sunglasses guy. If I wanted to be the uh, I don't know, hot dog cart guy, I could go present myself as a hot dog cart expert and everybody would just believe me. Yeah. But if you want to change how the the internet sees you, it can be done. Yeah. I don't even think it's necessarily that hard. But I think the the opposite effect is possibly true for you, where the trajectory you were on, it would be very easy to group you in and others have. You went to the conference with like the menfluencer style creators, the manosphere creators. Mm -hmm. You're a, a telegenic uh, white dude with a beard and an athletic build making productivity and lifestyle advice videos for college and post-college age men primarily. It would be really easy for you to be college info geek forever. Yeah. How much of what you're doing now is influenced not just by your desire to not do the same shit forever, but also just like making sure that you're not always that guy. Well, the college info geek thing I took steps many years ago to start moving away from that it was just because i didn't want to limit the audience so much like i realized if i make a video about time management or how to manage your calendar that's not just for students so i shouldn't have dash college info geek in the title it's for basically anybody who wants to be organized the idea of being like thought of as a menfluencer productivity influencer that actually doesn't bug me too much and you know maybe this is just like a lack of experience thing but i feel like when I have been lumped in with those menfluencers, it's never been in a negative way. I've never had anybody call me out and say that I'm problematic or anything like that. And I think that speaks to what I've chosen to cover and what I've chosen not to cover. And, you know, when I do cover certain topics, I cover it from one angle, not another. <laughs> so you mean you mean cover as in the subject matter 
coverage, yeah. not things that you choose to cover up. Oh, yeah. When I, when I, the things <laughs> I chose to hide up and have deleted off of Google. I've never been canceled because I've covered up all the scandals. Yeah, I'm uncancelable. You've got a good fixer. There are certain things I don't touch. Like, I've never made a video about nootropic drugs. And the reason for that is... Number one, they're not FDA approved. There's a lack of research, especially on a long-term case. And I know that if I come out with a video, even saying maybe they're fine, but there's not enough evidence, somebody's going to go, oh, that's a tacit endorsement of those drugs. I'm going to go do all the drugs. So I like there's just certain things I have never touched for that reason. The big reason that I'm going in this direction is because that's truly where I'm interested and fascinated to explore. Like, I just have so much fun with it. And I realize, like, if I pour energy and time into this, I'm going to upgrade my own brain, my own skills. But I'm also going to be able to put out useful stuff for a growing audience. I don't worry too much about, like, people thinking I'm like Gary Vee. I think it's pretty obvious there's some differences there. Well, there's that Twitter thread from a few days ago where... Somebody listed off a bunch of channels and you were right in the middle of uh, Gary V and Tim Ferriss. Naval was there and then Tim Ferriss was there. But, you know, I think Tim Ferriss is pretty cool. You know, a lot of what Naval says is pretty cool, even though some of it is kind of hilariously dumb. And like the thing is, so I have always perceived the world as even if I disagree with a person, there's something I can learn from them. And I think a lot of people also perceive the world in that way. So that will cause them to be like, oh, well, I like this person, this person, this person, you know, and if somebody else gets called out. Nuance is hard on the internet. And because mm -hmm. nuance is hard, it is hard to be nuanced about things. Yeah. So like from my perspective, may maybe maybe Tim Ferriss is awesome. Maybe he's like 75% an awesome dude and 25% problematic for various reasons. I don't know. I don't have a strong opinion on him, just sort of a vague feeling. Maybe for any of these people, most of what they do or much of what they do is fine. It's like you could pick up uh, like a, a pickup artist book, you could read through it and you could extract value from it. Mm. But the existence of the book and adding sales to the book or validating it, telegraphing to others that there is value in this book, that message gets messy. And you might accidentally be validating and socially signaling certain things that you don't necessarily mean to. And I think this is, I don't know, when when I look at certain types of creators, I won't name names here because I don't want to be that guy, but there's a, a creator that we work with. And when we were talking about working with her, she had asked if there was this other channel that we worked with. And I said, no, because I had my own concerns about them. And she said, good, because if you did, I would be a hard out on this conversation. Mm -hmm. And it's a, a channel about um, sort of a lifestyle menfluencer kind of a thing. And uh, what she said was interesting. She said, the problem isn't that they make scummy content. The problem is they mostly make good content. But like every seventh to 10th video is about subtly about how to trick women into sleeping with you. Mm -hmm. The problem is that they make those videos. If they did nothing but make those videos, it would be really easy to understand why they're bad. It's that it's peppered in so infrequently and the rest of it is so good, the good parts validate the bad parts and make it easier to have those things become normalized. Yeah, I mean, that that's absolutely a thing. You know, there, there's definitely like a part of this where you may perceive the content to be worse than it actually is on an individual case. But I've seen other cases where like the channel puts out 99% helpful, useful, free content and then because they've built up all this audience trust. Now they're shilling some like alt cryptocurrency and their <laughs> audience is just eating it up. And that pisses me off more than the people who are just always scammers and always evil. Because yeah, you've now made all these people trust you and they're eating out of your hand and they'll do whatever you say. To use that to just benefit yourself and violate that trust is like the worst thing you can do. What responsibility do we have? I think there's a lot of responsibility here. And th this actually comes from... You know, spending the last 10 years of my life being in this sort of life advice area, I firmly believe when you get to be in this area and you have an audience of people who are looking up to you to make legitimate life decisions, there's a burden that is now placed upon you. And a lot of these people don't respect it. But like whether you like it or not, someone's going to make a decision on whether they're going to go to college or not because of you. They're going to make decisions on what they eat, who they talk to, how they conduct themselves, what they do with their money, like how they live their lives. They're going to make decisions based on what you tell them and the example you set. And that's a huge responsibility. So, you know, I, I think that people need to take that a lot more seriously than they do. There's also, you know, part of that factors into my reasoning for not feeling uncomfortable being lumped in with people like Gary Vee or Tim Ferriss or whoever it is. 
Because if I worked so hard to never be associated with those kind of people, then the kind of people who are going to get sucked in and only listen to a Gary Vee or a Tim Ferriss are never going to hear from me. And I feel like because I have internalized that responsibility, you know, regardless of what Gary Vee is going to say or what some random bro influencer is going to say, I know what I stand for. I know what I think is right. I know what I think is good advice to give people. And if I'm lumped in with those people, maybe they find me. You know, this isn't me trying to say, like, I have better advice than the other person, but it is me trying to say, like, I know what my ethics are and I have the ability to share what I think is right with those people. And if I was never lumped in, they'd never hear from me. You're so nice, though. You like everybody. It's like political polarization, right? Like, if you're, like, so far left or so far right, then the people on the other side of the spectrum are just never going to ever listen to you. And your goal there is what? To, like, be a good example? Exactly. Yeah. You know? I've worried, going back to the, the pigeonholing thing, I've worried I play a fictionalized version of myself in Patrick Willems's videos and in his movie. Mm -hmm. And I've started doing cameos recently for other creators. Did one for Epos Fox, did one for Gerald and Dunn. And I've been toying for years with doing, like having my YouTube channel where I make videos about this kind of thing. And the thing that's held me back, and I think it's like, I'm embracing the podcast version of this, like almost as a way to dip my toes in, because this is inherently it's going to be unscripted and inherently this is more conversational. And I think there's value in that. But the reason I've, I've kind of shied away from this, I've, I've tried to be more background is because I don't want to necessarily be Dave the agent. I don't necessarily want to be this is the thing I'm an expert in. Mm -hmm. But I also recognize that this industry is full of sharks. Yeah. And some of them are disguised as fish. And there are plenty of good people, well-intentioned people who are spreading misinformation or crypto scams or creator economy payday loan systems. And I feel like if I have an opportunity with the position I'm in to be a good influence, maybe I should do that. We need counter-programming for some of these things. Mm -hmm. When we look at things like systems where a creator can get a pile of money today, where it's paid back to the, the loaning company... Uh, slowly over time out of AdSense earnings. When I see nefarious shit like that, that is effectively just a payday loan, it's really hard. When I see creators I like, creators I trust, promoting this to their audience or to their creator friends, it's really hard to not want to say something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think with the rant that I went on, you'll probably be able to guess what I think that you should do. But yeah, like, again, it's this is why I almost am happy to be lumped in with people that I sometimes disagree with, or some people who I think are absolutely, you know, not cool and absolutely spreading stuff I don't like. Because if I'm there too, I get to be the voice for what I think is right. And if I'm not there, I'm out of the conversation. That's interesting. My instinct with stuff like this is to like stand up and be like, no, that's bullshit. Don't do that. That person is wrong. Don't listen to them. Which, look, we all know why that's not necessarily a great career move. Mm -hmm. But like that is my instinct to stand side by side with those people and say, this person is great and I disagree with them on, on this front. Well, I mean, that's a big part of the spirit of, of this show is finding the points of friction or, or getting other perspectives. But it's less of a natural state for me to want to give platform to things that that like I feel a visceral reaction against. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, there's so there's a difference between giving platform to somebody you disagree with and being OK when you're lumped into a tweet thread with them. Like, I don't ever share anything Gary Vee does. I have some stuff, you know, that I really don't like about Gary Vee. But if somebody puts me into a tweet thread with him, I'm totally fine with that because, again, I'm part of the conversation. But you don't worry that the audience might see you the same way they see them. That doesn't uh, maybe tell you something, doesn't give you pause. I'm not saying it's even necessarily problematic, but do you do you think about that? I mean, I think about it, but I guess it's one of those things where it's like an acceptable risk or maybe it's just like something you have to deal with. Being part of the conversation means being potentially seen in a certain way, but that's like a surface level labeling. And when people dig in or if they want to lob an accusation at you, now they've taken an action and now they have to back it up. Yeah, I guess maybe the lesson there is that if you want to be in the conversation, you have to actually participate in the conversation. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are productivity influencers who have shilled alt crypto scams or whatever. But if anybody ever wants to accuse me of doing that, they're going to have to go pull evidence from an alternate dimension because I have never, ever mentioned one. We'll cancel you sooner or later. Don't worry. <laughs> we'll find a reason to cancel you sooner or later. 
when you look at the sort of pantheon of creator made things or things that creators have gotten involved in, because right now there's like there's plenty of YouTubers who are looking to invest in things. And there's like a mm. sort of a new wave of creator economy startups like A16Z is getting involved in some of this. I mean, it's harder now. I mean, the, with inflation and the economy being a little bit rockier, the money's dried up to an extent, but there's still stuff coming down the pike. There's a larger number of small creators who are getting other, you know, medium sized creators to invest in their businesses, their ideas. What is your take on that? I guess I hadn't thought about it that much to have a strong take. Well, when you think of like yourself or people in in the sphere that you're in or creators, I guess really of any size, YouTubers as investors, YouTubers as sort of pocket venture capitalists. My read on this, not to seed the conversation too hard, but my read on this is that there's a certain kind of, of creator, a certain kind of influencer who sees their success as an opportunity to, or as a signal that they are good at business mm -hmm. and they want to go out and invest in other things because they want to have a strong portfolio of creator economy business investments right. uh, that may not be fully thought through. I did see something on Hacker News recently, and this isn't specifically about YouTubers, but the conversation was about having a celebrity invest in your startup. Like, should you let a celebrity invest? Like a Ryan Reynolds or something. You know, the top answer was like, celebrities are notoriously fickle. They're not loyal. They're just going to use the fact that you're starstruck to take a bunch of equity and then essentially never do anything for you. <laughs> <laughs> this, this, yeah, yeah, that, that sounds about right. Having had some experience with that in the past. I do have to wonder how much of, of, of that you were maybe teeing up a bit here. No, no, I wasn't even thinking about that. I don't know if there's quite the same record of that happening in the creator economy. Yet. And part of that is just that the creator economy is so new. Right. Especially this part of it with YouTubers and creators starting to invest in things and partner with brands. But the thing is, like, most creators are good at being creators. They're good at audience building. They are not necessarily savvy investors uh they don't necessarily feel the same amount of loyalty that like a true startup co-founder would feel so you know i guess if somebody who's listening to this is the smaller creator or the startup founder who's trying to get a bigger creator to come on or evaluating that think about that think about the fact that like there is a big power imbalance in the situation and you might think that they're going to go out and do all this promotion for you when in reality, what they're more incentivized to do is go get the next deal. It actually kind of reminds me of MCNs. Mm -hmm. I didn't talk about this in my, my Twitter thread about sponsorships because MCNs feel like they're kind of dead. But a lot of creators think like, oh, the MCN is going to come in. I'm going to sign with them. They're going to give me all this help. They're going to help me get collabs set up. They're going to help me do all these cool things. And then it doesn't happen. If you think about it, kind of obvious that it's going to go that way, because if they're getting you to sign and the agreement is we get X percentage of your AdSense, regardless of what we do, then their incentive is to go get the next deal. Mm -hmm. Their incentive is to take all of their resources and put them towards getting as many creators to sign into that deal as possible, because every single one of them becomes a passive income generator for that MCN. Right. Why would they help, especially when they know? And I think like we all know at this point, by and large, the creators who are going to succeed are going to succeed despite, you know, who they're working with. They're just they're the ones who are hungry. They're smart. They're creative. They're going to figure it out. It's not because they got a free Epidemic Sound account from their MCN deal <laughs> that they're succeeding, you know, 100 percent. I think that's worth talking about because there'd be it'd be really easy for me in my position. Look, I, I run, amongst other things, a talent management company, and I talk to creators all the time who uh, I was on the phone with somebody yesterday who's like, why should I work with you? And my response was like, you tell me, what is it you want to get out of this? And if what you want to get out of this isn't something that we can give you, then I'm just going to be honest with you about that. I don't want to waste my time mm -hmm. because like we don't get a cut of your AdSense money. So like if I don't think that you're going to be a good fit for sponsors or the sponsors that we typically work with, it's going to take us a lot of work to build relationships that will be valuable for you. And you're going to be a big pain in my ass. So like if it's not a good fit, I'm going to tell you it's not a good fit because I don't want to have to do all that extra work. Yeah. If we move to a we collect AdSense revenue passive income system, then, yeah, I'm going to go sign everybody on the planet. Let's go. I'll take all that money. Why not? Mm -hmm. uh, I talked to a creator yesterday, not about working with us, but they just had some, they were looking for advice. They're, they're working with a manager and they're thinking about signing a longer term deal with that manager. And they, they laid out what the deal would be. And the deal would be 10% 
of everything. 10% of sponsor bookings, 10% of AdSense revenue, and 10% of any incoming investment into the channel. And I said, well, hang on, let's look at that last piece real quick. Because like sponsorship, whatever, yeah, that, that's how we work. Take a percentage of the things that, that are brought to you. AdSense, don't give that up. That person didn't bring you, unless they're increasing your AdSense revenue, which would be really hard to account for, don't give them that money. Mm -hmm. But incoming investment, what does that mean? And the creator tells me that they're looking at different systems to take investment in the channel, like equity investment in the channel to build up bigger. And I said, well, do you need that? What does that get you? Do you think that money will equal views for you? Like, what is it you think you're going to get out of that that you can't get in other ways? And let's tease that out. And we're talking it through. And I kind of point out, like, whatever the answer is here, I guess my real point is when you have somebody who's just getting 10% of everything you get, they have no incentive to try to talk you out of taking a bad investment. Yeah. They have every incentive to get involved and negotiate the largest possible investment, which would be you giving up the largest amount of equity. Mm -hmm. What that person wants is for you to give up as much as they can convince you to give up because that is going to directly influence how much they get paid. Yep. The position I'm in is I don't think that's a good idea. I think there's better ways to get that money and you shouldn't do it. This person has no incentive to ever give you that advice. And that is a thing you should be thinking about. That's a thing you should be concerned about. Mm -hmm. I worry a little bit that the, the MCN model being replaced with this sort of uh, either sponsor booking model, which, you know, that's, that's our bread and butter to a large degree. So I'm not going to complain too hard about that as long as the agency actually represents you mm -hmm. or this sort of like casual middleman model, which is the agency that doesn't represent you. They just bring you some brand deals here and there and they have no obligations or this kind of toxic manager relationship where they're getting a cut of literally everything you do. And I've been contacted by some pretty big names who are not thrilled with the, the way things are going with the management style approach, which maybe those are, are one-off things. But as you say, the incentives are all wrong. Yeah. The incentives are everything. As an industry, we're really young. Mm -hmm. The creator economy, how that's a term that's existed for what, a year or two when people started saying that? We act like it's a, an ages old thing. No, this is like, we're still inventing the terminology. Mm -hmm. Patrick Williams and I will argue about whether or not we should use the word content. Like all of these terms are still being defined. We're figuring it out as we go and good for us, but we're having to do what other industries did over the course of decades. We're having to define terms and process and best practices on the fly, a rapid pace never before seen in any industry. And in this industry, mostly organized and executed by people who are in their early to mid twenties because of the nature of who is more likely to become popular as an influencer and who is more likely to want to pursue being an influencer. Mm -hmm. So it's a very young industry, both in the age of the people involved relative to other industries and just hasn't been around very long. And we're having to do things so rapid fire. Not a surprise to me that there are some bad ideas and some misconceptions. But I think a byproduct of that is the players involved are looking at other industries as templates. It's really easy to look at the creator economy and try to map it to Silicon Valley. Yeah. And when I see creators trying to behave like like mogul investors, they're just looking at like, what did Gary V do? Mm -hmm. What's on TechCrunch? Is there a creator economy business that would be on TechCrunch? Well, then I want in. My creator friends are starting a business. I want in. I want to be seen as a smart investor. And there are people who within this business look at the traditional media industry as a template of what to do. And I think that these agent who takes 10% of everything you do, that's kind of how it works in the traditional, like if you're, if you're a film actor and you've got an agent, if you're, uh, I don't know, Ben Affleck or something, Ben Affleck's agent probably takes 10% of what he makes. Mm -hmm. And he probably has a whole team of people, different agents working on different parts of his, his business, taking a cut of what he makes. But the sales for his book or the ticket sales for a movie or the streaming deal he's going to get, those deals will be negotiated by that agent or that team of agents. There is no AdSense for Ben Affleck. There is no automatic system that just keeps sending him money. Yeah. And the deal with YouTube has already been negotiated. It's a take it or leave it deal. Mm -hmm. There's nothing I or any other agent can do to go and, and, and get a dramatically different AdSense deal. I realize as I'm saying that, that there kind of are like MCN holdover things where you can get into different tiers, whatever. It's, it's not really a, it's not negotiable in that way. Yeah. And I don't know that trying to map those things, generally speaking, 
my point here is that I don't think that that trying to map to industry standards from other industries is ultimately going to be the correct answer. I understand why it's being done now. I don't think that it's it's ultimately going to be correct. Mm -hmm. There are probably useful lessons to take from other industries. Oh, sure. Where do you think we are in terms of sophistication as an industry? Oh, I don't think we're even close. (laughs) We're not even close. I mean, so, you know, I've talked to several people who are all trying to like essentially build analytics tools, both for the income and for views and things like that. Mm -hmm. You know, the fact that they don't exist yet or that the income analytics aren't tightly coupled to view analytics tells me, yeah, we have a long way to go. In SaaS, like this stuff has existed for a decade or more. And we don't even have it yet. So I, I still think we're sort of like very Wild West rootin' tootin' running through one road dusty towns at this point. When we look at the creator economy tools that exist that don't exist, what do you think should be built next? I'm not actually sure in terms of tools, but because, you know, my passion is education. I like putting out educational resources, especially making them free. The thing I want to see is a more centralized or open resource for people to learn about all this stuff. Like I wrote an 85 tweet thread a couple of months ago about how sponsorships work and how like views don't correlate perfectly to views or to money. Great thread. But that's like buried in Twitter now. And I feel like a lot of this information is just not that accessible for people who are waking up to a 100,000 subscriber channel overnight now going, oh, heck, do I sign away 10% of my channel to this investor who's now in my inbox? How do I accept a sponsor? Which sponsor should I work with? What should I charge? Like, There's so much information out there. And I feel like in a lot of other industries, a lot of those questions have been answered. Right. And like right now, it's just like, what do I do? I don't know. Yeah, we we have industry standards in other industries. Why don't we have them in this industry? It's really confusing. That's what it is. Yeah, we don't have standards. It's just like, figure it out. I'm laughing because we have a we have a poster hanging up on the wall in our office, inspired by a conversation I had with Josh from TubeFilter. He texted me one day to ask, what does a YouTube sponsorship cost? And I'm like, it depends. And he, he's like, oh, I was afraid you'd say that. And so I like went through, I'm like, I don't know, uh, depends on the creator. Like, what kind of videos do they make? Is, is the creator on camera? Are they male? Are they attractive? Is it a bearded guy? Is he in good shape? Does he speak mostly to college age students and post-college age adults? Is the, is the conversation around like lifestyle and fitness advice? Do they talk about personal finance and productivity? They have a, a really attractive set decoration setup? Is the production value high? Are they known for only working with quality sponsors? Because if the answers to all of these questions are yes, then it's Thomas Frank. And how much is the sponsorship on his video? Well, it depends. And he drew on a napkin, uh, a flowchart of how much does a YouTube sponsorship cost with an arrow down to, are you Thomas Frank? And then two arrows down to yes and no. And they both point to, it depends. So we had our graphics team turn that into a poster and it's it's on the wall here. There's just so many things you can't know. Mm-hmm. Well, I get the, the question I hear from creators all the time is how much money should I be charging? What should we charge the sponsor? How much money can you get me for a sponsorship? And it's like, how much does dinner cost? Yeah. I have a thousand things that I need to know before I can answer that question. There's not nearly enough context in there. The funny thing is like, there are parts of our industry where that question has been answered, uh, namely the AdSense market, because that works in an auction model. And even there, the answer of, you know, how much are my AdSense earnings going to be this month? The answer is it depends. Is it December or is it January? Yeah. Yeah. What yeah, is, yeah. you know, yeah. What is the um, greater economy look like right now? What genre of videos do you make? Like there's all these different factors. And that's been boiled down to this highly automated machine learning driven high frequency trading auction. And even then it's like, you never know. It depends on the day of the week. Yeah, when somebody comes to me and they say, yeah, I'm getting $10,000 per video from sponsors now. Does that sound high or low to you? I'm like, it sounds like a number. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's high. Maybe it's not high. I don't know. Let's run tests and find out. Yep. It's not about how do we get the tools to answer that question. The tools to answer that question are you, you build relationships. The relationships are the tools. What we need is relationship management tools, I think. What I want to see, I guess I'm just agreeing with you here. I think the tools that we need are better creator education. Mm hmm. So that we aren't just looking to, well, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make this much money. Therefore, that is the correct answer. Or I've been charging $30,000 a video and they keep saying yes. So that must be the right answer. It's like, yeah, but would they have said yes to 45 if you pushed? And if they did say yes to 45, would they have done that once? And then it doesn't perform as well. And now you get no money from them ever again. Like, how do you navigate that? And the answer is usually data. Mm -hmm. 
get more performance data? Like, how do we build tools for that? How do we teach creators the questions that they should be asking? And I don't mean literally you and me, how do we teach? But like as a, as a community, as a, as a group, so much of what we do is driven by tribal knowledge. Right. So much of what we do is people in chat rooms or in Twitter DMs comparing notes. Mm-hmm. Within one particular genre of YouTube, a bunch of the creators got together and they built a, a shared spreadsheet of the different sponsor deals they had and like how things worked and who they worked with to get that deal and what the numbers looked like. And when this was shown to me by one of the people in that group, I 100% every cell in that spreadsheet individually makes sense. The conclusions that they drew from the data they had weren't insane conclusions. The problem is that they had an incredibly incomplete data set and they were assuming things like, yeah, sponsor rate should be roughly $30 CPM. And I'm like, no, Mm -hmm. never will that be a thing. Yeah. A couple of people got that once and now you think that's the benchmark? That isn't how this works. That's not how direct to consumer influencer marketing works. They don't even care about the views. That's a dirty, dark secret for most of of sponsorships is nobody cares. Mm -hmm. It's all based on conversions. And so like, Getting people to a point where they even understand fundamentally how the system actually works, even then, my visibility into this, and I feel like I'm in a privileged position. We handle like 400 sponsorships a month across like 160 channels, and I've been doing this for the last, on the YouTube side, over five years now, and for podcasts for like another five years before that, even from where I'm sitting, there are corners of this business, there are genres that work dramatically differently. I mostly work with like education and video essay and science-y nerd creators. For somebody like Mr. Beast, whenever Jimmy shows me his analytics, I just stare like a child who's just developed object permanence. <laughs> like I'm in awe of what these numbers are because they, they're so alien to me. It's the same YouTube analytics views that I see from other people. Or when he talks about how his deals are set up, it's so foreign to me because he's in a, a different genre. And frankly, like at his scale on a, on a different planet. And so I I can't pretend like I know how those systems work or how these things are going to apply to everybody. Mm -hmm. But because it's so driven by tribal knowledge, how do we build systems where we can share our context and information with one another in a way that isn't destructive? Oh, we could probably build a notion. (laughs) All right. Well, I'd like to thank our guest, Thomas Frank, for being on the show this, let's say, week. I don't know. I don't want to make any promises. Tom, where can people find you on the internet? Not in real life. I don't want people stalking you. But in cyberspace, how do they find you? I had my home address at the ready. I had find my access for everyone listening to this. No, uh, thomasjfrank.com is my website. And you can find basically everything from there. If you want to check out the videos that I'm currently making, they're on Thomas Frank Explains on YouTube and Nebula with no ads on Nebula. And then Tom Frankly on Twitter. I'm pretty active there. So if you have questions, let me know. Well, thank you, Thomas. I am Dave Wiskus. You can find me on Twitter at dwiskus. The sponsor of this episode is Nebula. Nebula is the platform upon which this show can be found. It is also the platform that uh, myself and Thomas and a bunch of other creators have built. You could go sign up for an account right now. You get access to like 15,000 videos that we have ad free. Got a bunch of exclusives, uh, Nebula Originals, Nebula Plus content, a bunch of great podcasts many of which are available early. Five bucks a month, you get all this stuff, and uh, you won't have to hear me talking about Nebula. And you get to support your favorite creators. 